Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. On today's episode, the city of Minneapolis has pledged to dismantle the local police department and a protester in Seattle was shot during yesterday's action. The Vancouver Park Board receives a petition asking the Langara Golf Course become a permanent green space. They'll get that petition at their meeting this evening. And today is World Oceans Day. We take the opportunity to learn more about the research happening in our very own backyard. That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. Well, we know BC has done a good job of flattening the curve and keeping the numbers of COVID-19 cases down, but so have many other countries, Denmark being one of them, and some new restrictions lifted in that country. So we thought it would be a good idea to check in with Shane Woodford. He's a freelance journalist based in Denmark, a former staff member here at CKNW. Shane, thanks so much for joining us again. Yeah, no problem. Good morning to you. So what's happening there? I'm reading that events can now be bigger, more people gathering. What else is opening up in Denmark? Yeah, so uh, you just referenced it there. Uh, the uh, the ban on gatherings was 10 person or more uh, for the last couple of months. As of today, they have raised the roof on that. So you can now put together 50 people, uh, no more than that. And as well today, uh, zoos, museums, botanical gardens, and amusement parks and swimming pools, fitness clubs, all that kind of stuff opens as part of the phase three reopening. And how, what sense are you getting from people as far? Are they confident uh, with the reopening and getting back to these types of facilities? Yeah, uh, it's really interesting. I mean, we've been out traveling around over the last week and I've been in some big cities and small towns and all over the place. And there's a real sense here of a return to normal. Uh, that said, uh, there is lots of spacing in stores. There's signs on stores saying, hey, listen, we can only take, you know, three people at a time, 10 people, whatever the deal is. Uh, hand sanitizer is everywhere. You cannot go 10 feet now in Denmark without uh, putting a little hand sanitizer on your hands and that kind of thing. Uh, but there's a lot more people out and about. There's a lot more sense of returning to normal. And more importantly, Jill, the numbers just keep on falling so much so uh, that the uh, Serum Institute, which is sort of the Danish Scandinavian version of the Center for Disease Control, actually had a press conference about a week ago where they said, "Listen, we can't, uh, we can't explain this. All of our sort of projections had some kind of infection case increase, and they just are falling, and we do not get it." That said, um, we all are watching these Black Lives Matter protests that are going on around the world, and there is some concern there, as there is in Denmark. There is. 15,000 people, Jill, who demonstrated over the weekend in Copenhagen in a Black Lives Matter protest. And prominent in the news here this morning are politicians and health officials here in Denmark who are really concerned about events like that possibly being sort of a super spreader for the coronavirus. And they're urging anyone who took part in these events to immediately go out and get a COVID test. What do you think this is going to do as far as opening the borders? Because Denmark has had this success, but it hasn't been the same with other countries in that area. Yeah, that's true. And there's, it's a bit complex. As of the 15th of this month, Denmark will open its borders to Norway, Iceland, and Germany. 
And it's basically this thing we're seeing around the world of countries that are sort of in likewise geographic positions that are saying, okay, listen, we got a handle on it. We think you've got a handle on it and you've got a handle on it. So we're going to work out these little travel bubble deals. And Denmark has done that. Now, that said, Jill, the European Union over the weekend issued a mandate to its member countries that they must um, open their borders, all member countries, internally by July the 1st. That's a big problem in Denmark because they are adamant that they're going to take things slow and steady. And the big concern is, of course, Sweden, which has amassed, I mean, they were kind of on the wrong track. And since Wednesday of last week, they've amassed over 5,000 new infection cases, a really sharp curve. And Denmark is really leery about especially opening its borders to Sweden, but they're not going to make any further border openings here, they say, until August 31st. So that puts them on a bit of a collision course with the EU. It does seem like a a bit of an odd one, doesn't it, with so many countries working so hard to get these numbers down to just pick an arbitrary date to, to open up the borders? Yeah, it is. I mean, a lot of this really is guesswork, right? I mean, we haven't a global pandemic. We have seen them in the past with your SARS and things like that, but they're not common events where... Um, you know, we've got a lot of expertise and there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of science in this and there's a lot of like, (laughs) we're basically, okay, we're going to try groups of 10 or we're going to try to do this. We're going to try to do that. And we're going to cross our fingers a little bit and hope it works. There's definitely a big element to that, but you're kind of seeing the economic weight being brought to bear on the situation. There's been a lot of sacrifice, especially in the tourism, travel, restaurant, hotel sectors. And now there's big pressure in the EU, as I'm sure there is in Canada and the United States and everywhere else, to try and throw these people a lifeline. So uh, especially with the nice summer weather here now, uh, there is definitely a feeling in the EU of like, okay, what can we do to try and improve tourism numbers? And one of the ones is to try and get sort of travel between European countries so that we can at least get European tourists. There's there's still a lot of caution about allowing outsiders into the EU, and I think that'll be a slower progress, especially for you know, Americans coming in especially. Uh, But there is a sense here of, okay, we have corona, but we also really need to get our tourism sector going. All right. Uh, Shane, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much. And I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good, Jill. Talk soon. Shane Woodford, he is a freelance journalist now based in Denmark, talking about the reopening and the plans there. This is Mornings with Simi. As you've been hearing and seeing in the news, protests took place this past weekend. Thousands of people gathering in some uh, cities, uh, places around the world in support of George Floyd, to remember George Floyd and to call for reforms, particularly when we're talking about policing. The city of Minneapolis has pledged that they will reform the budget for police as well in New York City. The uh, mayor, de Blasio, has also announced there will be policing reforms in that city. Let's bring in CBS reporter. Paul Violis. Uh, we've chatted with him about this before. He is joining us once again. Paul, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Joe. Uh, first, what's your response to this idea? Because we've been hearing the call for defunding the police. We're now hearing, as I mentioned, from uh, the city of Minneapolis, some of the councillors there, uh, the mayor of New York saying, yes, we are going to change or look at changing the funding model for our police force. Well, Joe, let me put it to you this way. 40 years in government service here in the United States, and that would be unequivocally the worst public policy in the history of the United States. Without question, without hesitation, there would be nothing worse than that. And why is that? Well, let's look at it this way. You want to defund the police, and let's just look at the business part of this. Forget the emotional part. 
Average police salary in the United States starting at $31,000 a year. That's it, 31K. Police applications down 63% right now in the United States as it is. Now you want to take money off the table where they already don't have enough money for proper training and proper equipment. You want to take money off the table, limit the amount of bodies, increase the response call, and at the same time, send a message that if police can't protect my community, then I guess I better protect it myself. We're still going to have looting, rioting, home invasions. The risk to terrorism on American soil is just as much as it was 10 days ago. So at the end of the day, and my message to Minneapolis Town Council, and I've said this numerous times, and I'd say it there, is this. If you want to do this, do it. But do it accepting the responsibility to make the face-to-face death notifications for all the people that die as a result of your decision. Your call. Uh, do you think there's some, the, the, it's such a, a, a phrase that when you ask somebody for more explanation, when someone says we want to defund the police and when you ask, well, what does that actually mean? Uh, it's not as though people are calling for lawlessness. It's uh, this idea of changing the funding model and maybe defund the police isn't the best way of saying it. It's putting more resources into mental health. It's putting more resources into places maybe where police aren't the best people, whether it's a wellness check or it's something else. Is it, is it a way of, of not saying we want to get rid of the police, but maybe focus police more in one particular area no that's not solving the problem jill you know what we're doing we're diverting and we're deflecting but we're not dealing with the problem the problem is that there's systemic racism end of story no one wants to say it there i said it and there are issues with respect to police training that need immediate correction in addition jill police selection and police recruitment police training police retraining All of these things had to be handled firsthand during the Rodney King incident some 30 years ago. I was the head of a state police academy at the time and and also charged with with handling this on a state level as well. And we were able to put our arms around that. Unfortunately, in our country, in the United States, we are exceptionally good at sticking our heads in the sand. Looks good. Leave it alone. And this is what happened. Defunding the police, Joe, will reduce positions, will extend response time and to all your listeners and thank god it's not happening in canada because obviously you guys make more sense but think of how you're going to feel when you pick up the phone and you call 911 and the dispatcher says i'm sorry we don't have anyone available hang on how about that yeah, no, and, and that's exactly it. Like People want to be able to call 911. They want to be able to have a police officer respond when something is wrong. But I think you make a good point. So when we're talking about police forces in general, I think we can all agree that the majority of officers are good. Well, the fact is, and we can be talking about whether it's in Vancouver, we could talk about the RCMP, we could talk about federal, state, local law enforcement in the United States. In North America, statistically, less than one-half of 1% of law enforcement misrepresent the badge. No good cop will ever support a bad cop. Those are two things we know. But we have a problem, Jill. The problem is that we're putting, in a lot of cases, we're putting the wrong people in uniforms, and we're not correcting it. And we've got so many people wanting to grandstand, including chiefs and sheriffs. And everybody wants their moment in the sun. We're not dealing with the issue. The only way, Jill... The only way, I tell you, is to, fi- to fix this, is address it head on. Deal with the ugly issue head on, and we can get past it. If we don't, 
this is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. You say that no bad cop would, or sorry, no good cop would support a bad cop. But if we look at the case in Buffalo, if you watch the video of the 75-year-old man being pushed down, I mean, people are upset not only by the fact that the man was pushed down, but that the officers lied about it. They said he fell and hit his head. And it only came to light because video surfaced of them pushing him to the ground. I mean, that's, and then, mm-hmm. and then we saw people applauding them as they came out of the building. Look, there is no question, Joe, that that type of behavior is not reflective, nor is it supported or endorsed by the majority of police in the United States. End of story. And they will be disciplined. They will be discharged. Whatever is going to happen, it follows due course. But at the end of the day, what you're mentioning right there, that didn't just happen, Joe. That happened a long time before that. How did you select that person? What type of psychological exam? How have you been supervising that person? This guy, Chauvin, and this is a perfect example, Joe. This guy, Chauvin, 19 IAs in 17 years. Why does he still have a job? Who Why does he still have still a job? Work, Joe? You're, you're former law right? enforcement. How do you even answer that question? Why did he still have that job? He did it because the supervisors fell down on the job. Maybe they were also complicit. The chief, whoever chief administrator signed off on it, they're complicit. The whole department made a mistake by letting this guy go. They let this go too far. When you have a bad cop, you discipline fair, but you discipline and you get rid of it. That's it. You don't let it go on. When you let a guy like Chauvin stay on the job, you create so much toxicity in, in, toxicity in your department that it becomes what Minneapolis has become. End of story. You can't get rid of that unless you get rid of them early. They let this go on. This is on police management. This is on police supervision. This is on their internal processes. Is it not also, though, in getting back to your comment that no good cop supports a bad cop, clearly his co-workers knew this, and there were other incidents that people would have witnessed. I get what you're saying about management, and that's where it needs to start. But there had to have been support for him to stay in that position. And that support, Joe, administratively comes from the one person that is responsible to sign that annual performance review, not the other cops. We don't know what the other cops thought of him. We don't know if they detested him, if they didn't even want to work with him. We don't know if there were ever any complaints filed by other police that said, I won't ride with him, I won't partner with him, put me in another district. We haven't gotten there yet. We haven't gotten there because the reporting has been overly myopic. We need to dissect what happened in that police department, understand how systemic it is across the country, and then start dealing head on with the problem. As I said, we're not. That thing lasted for a long time. And, and Jill, I will tell you, we are going to find more and more victims surface at the hands of this guy that happened over the years in the days and weeks to come because they dropped the ball. Uh, one more question. Given your history in law enforcement, what you've seen over the years, the decades, do you think that what we are seeing right now will lead to some kind of change? I don't know, Joe. Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I hope and pray to God that it will. But I'm not confident about that, and I'm going to tell you why, because the leadership here is miserable. And when you have politicians that are more concerned with keeping their job than doing their job and grandstanding, we don't solve the problem. And unless, and, um, to your question, Jill, unless we get true community leaders, the informal leaders, and true police leaders, not the chiefs and sheriffs, and to sit down at the table and to really address this, then no, it won't change. All right, Paul, we'll leave it there. It's uh, always great to have you on the show. We'll talk to you again uh, again soon, I'm sure. Thank you so much.
Yes, ma'am. My pleasure, Jill. Paul Violas, a CBS reporter, also former law enforcement in Los Angeles. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as we know, some of the temporary changes made because of COVID-19 have led people to call for permanent ones. Uh, The Park Board going to be taking a look at the future of Stanley Park Drive and whether that's going to go back to what it looked like before the pandemic or if it will be modified. There have also been calls for green spaces to stay green spaces, in particular the Langara Golf Course in Vancouver. There's actually a petition to make that golf course a green space and to keep it to a green space. And Kahe Law is the starter of the petition. And Kahe joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about it. Good morning to you. Tell me a little bit, what prompted you to start this petition? Yeah, well, you know, my family and I, my husband and my two young children, we live just a few blocks away from Langara. And in mid-March, when we heard that the golfing had been closed to the public, but we could go in as you know, general use, we went in and we discovered this amazing green space that has ponds and um, all these paved trails. And so we ended up using it quite a lot. Almost every day we would take it, our kids in there for a bike ride. And over the eight weeks that it was closed, we saw it draw in so many people in such a diverse cross-section of our community from other young families to elderly people who were out walking, to people with disabilities, people of all socioeconomic backgrounds, race, diversity. Um, and it really, when we heard that Langara was going to be closed as a golf course, closed as a green space and reverted back to um, uh, exclusive use for golfers and pay people who would be able to pay for that, it was very sad for us to think that you know, we had all made these sacrifices during the pandemic and we were going to just go back to what things were beforehand, Um, especially given that right now we need a lot of green space to be safe Um, and that obviously during the time when it was closed, um, it was used by a really uh, broad cross-section of the community and we ultimately need to rethink what this green space, this 120 acres of um, uh, beautiful natural environment could do to serve all, all walks of life in all ranges of our communities. Uh, the petition so far has uh, about 420 people have signed on. Uh, is the goal then, or would you like to see the golf course gone completely, or is there room for perhaps a, a compromise of maybe making it a nine-hole golf course and, and setting the rest up as a park? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that right now, I think we have to think about this in the immediate term. Um, I think we'd be hard-pressed to be able to predict what's going to happen in the long term. I think everyone's kind of recognizing with COVID-19, you know, we have to think about what we can do right now. And right now, we would like to have it fully closed, um, 100% open to the public, um, seven days a week to allow for families in, in such a variety of uses. And then we do know that the, the city is um, was already starting a process of consultation to look at the reuse of Langara specifically. Um, and, and also within their 25-year plan, they really want to be increasing green space in serving the broader needs and recreational needs of our communities broader. And we say, let's accelerate those conversations. Let's take this opportunity to um, be able that that we have obviously shown that we can close such a 
space and open it up to public and that there is such broader community demand, let's have those consultations and make that process um, and, and that decision to open up the utilization of that space. Um, uh, let's do it, you know, right after or in parallel so that we don't, we go back to um, uh, uh, the opportunity for that space to be used by everyone in our community. Uh, we only have a lot of- it's, it's very hard for us to kind of think that this green space could be used, um, is best served as a, as a golf course. And so our request is in the near term, open it up to the public, serve the needs of our community, and then let's accelerate those conversations and have a really um, a, a strong effort to, to move that forward quickly. Uh, only about 30 seconds left. What about the argument from golfers that it's a public course, it's less expensive than the private courses, and they enjoy using it? Yeah, well, there's three public golf courses, right? So certainly I think we can look at this broad, um, uh, the broader picture of many different options. And I think it is part of that process is talking about what are the broad needs of our community. And if that remains a very strong and important um, uh, need of our community in comparison to all the other needs of growing population, the need for public green space, um, for healthy lifestyles, then let's build that in. That's the whole point of all this is have a, a consideration of what are the needs of our broader community versus protecting the needs of a smaller demographic right now so that we can really serve the, the whole of our community um, and, and those needs that have emerged out of this pandemic. All right. Kahela, we'll leave it there and see where this goes. But thank you so much for spending some time with us. Can I just do one plug for our petition? It's at change.org slash openlangara, O-P-E-N-L-A-N-G-A-R-A. All right. People can uh, find it there. Thanks again. That is Kahe La. She started the petition to keep the Langara Golf Course as a green space. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today. As you've likely been hearing and seeing, there were protests and rallies taking place around the world this past weekend. And in BC, there were several rallies happening, some of them in smaller communities, in the big cities as well. In Prince George, about 700 people gathered on Saturday to join forces and to rally. And Nathan Andrews was one of the organizers of that rally. He's an assistant professor at the University of North Northern BC and joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about what happened. Nathan, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me this morning. Thank you for joining the program. How, how, what are your thoughts on the turnout and what happened and that, at that particular rally? I mean, it, it was a massive turnout, right? So there was one that happened on Friday, which had about a thousand people. And then Saturday, I co-organized one that had you know, 700 plus people there. I was actually surprised because the weather wasn't good. Um, but I found that, you know, having that many people there really shows how this issue resonates with people um, in Prince George and even neighborhood cities. Some people came from neighborhood cities as well to join us. Um, and it, it, it's an amazing um, show of support, right, for, for such an important issue. And you would, you would never have imagined that there were, you know, you would have these many black people um, in Prince George. But in fact, it wasn't just black people. It was people from all backgrounds. And that's really a strong show. There was also a strong backing from the, um, the indigenous leaders and, and community members as well in Prince George. So that really is, is the beauty of diversity and inclusion. And that's, that, I think that's what really 
um, got showcased on, on Saturday. Does it also show that while we tend to, I think even on a bigger scale, sometimes people will say we don't have the same type or the same history of racism in Canada compared to the States, say, for example, or even taking it a, a further step saying smaller communities don't have the same issues as the larger cities. Does this show that, yes, in fact, there is a problem and there is a reason and this is why people felt they wanted to come out and raise awareness about this? I, I agree totally. I mean, racism is not the same everywhere, but there is still racism everywhere, right? So I think people here recognize that, that Canada is not innocent. And in Northern BC, you know, we all know about the treatment, the mistreatment of Indigenous peoples. And so that it really hits right home when we think about racism, especially in, in smaller communities, in Northern communities, where we have a lot of um, Indigenous populations. But I mean, there are also Black people here. And what happens in smaller communities is that sometimes the issues are more dire, but there are fewer voices that speak out, right, compared to bigger cities like Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver that have Black Lives Matter movement. Um, in smaller cities, sometimes these do not exist. And so the structures of power continue to disadvantage people without they having a voice. So essentially, people are literally choking and, and cannot breathe in such systems, but they are not able to speak. So this really showed that people can actually come out and speak. And so having that many people show that people had issues and people just wanted to speak out, even if not for themselves, for other people that they've seen go through these kinds of um, you know, issues and challenges. Did you get the sense from people, or maybe not at the, at the rally for, for people that, were, that came to the rally, but did, do you get the sense that people are unaware of the number of issues and of the fact that there are issues in every community? I, I would say so. I think there were a number of speeches that were given by people, a couple of people that came up and said, well, a police stopped me before. And they stopped me basically because of my color. And they didn't have anything to ask me. They, there was nothing I had done wrong. But it was, he could tell that it was just basically because of who he, he is. And, and that's why they just stopped him to ask him questions, right? I mean, it's not the same. They, they are not going to pin you on the ground. But he came out because of all that he's seen in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world. He came out of his car. And, and he wanted to, you know, just make sure he's surrendering everything and all. But people were really surprised by, by these stories. And I saw a bunch of journalists go after him later on to really ask him to, to, to share the story because people think these things cannot happen or do not happen in, in, in smaller cities such as Prince George, but they do happen. I've, I've heard some voices or some organizers with other Black Lives Matter chapters uh, take offense when they're asked, well, what's the solution or what needs to be done next? What's the next step in, in prompting some type of change and saying, well, it's not up to the Black community. It's not up to Black people to fix these mistakes, to find the solutions. What do you say to that? Because, because to me, I, I kind of feel like it's everybody's issue. But what do you say to that when, when people ask the question, what happens next? What do we do? So I, I really have a challenge with that, too, because it's, it's like what happens next? Well, I, I didn't create this system, so the system has to fix itself. But, I mean, we are really um, trying to change the system, right? So if we see ourselves as being able to make a change, I think we should also be willing to contribute to making that change, right? So for some people, just going out for protests and stuff is a contribution to that change because, in a way, you are making things um, visible and you're making things come out. And so by critiquing the system, in a way the system is able to change. But I think that there are a couple of things we could possibly do. One of them is to break structures, structures that lead to poverty. For me, I think poverty is one of the underlying outcomes of racial injustice, right? So if people are poor, if you think about criminals, you say, well, these are a bunch of criminals. They are criminals because the system does not favor them. The system has made them so. 
and so then they go they go into the the prison systems and, and so you, you see that there's proportionate number of black people and indigenous peoples that are in the prison system because of the structures that did not work for them. The structures in the first place were not even made for them. So I think we need to basically overhaul the structures of power and, and, and various institutions that limit people's advancement. You know, everyone being able to advance regardless of their color or racial background. I think that would be one of the key things that need to be done. I mean, I'm, I'm not proposing we change the Constitution, but I think we need to really be, be, be very conscious in the efforts we take in, in disrupting these structures that already exist that prevent um, these changes from happening. And also the police, right? The police is, is a key factor. We, we often hear about the police as our friend. It seems to be a rhetoric, but it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to people that have experienced police brutality or any form of aggression from the police. And so I think this, this notion of police is our friend should really become materialized by genuine um, sort of peace building or even trust building activities within the community. So, I mean, these are just a couple of things that come to mind quickly in terms of how we can proactively change the system and make things better. All right. Well, Nathan, I hope to chat with you again. And I know there will be more rallies and more uh, large gatherings and people coming out to call for change and to come up with those ideas or discuss uh, those ideas. Uh, Great to talk with you this morning. Thank you so much for joining the program. Excellent. Thank you for having me, Joe. All right. All right, you too. That is Nathan Andrews. He's a Black Lives Matter rally organizer in Prince George. He also works as an assistant professor at the University of Northern BC. And again, hundreds of people coming out over the weekend in Prince George, one of many, many rallies and protests being held in BC, in Canada, right around the globe. Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This is Mornings with Simi. And something we've been talking about a lot throughout this pandemic, and even before the pandemic, but certainly a spotlight has been placed on long-term care facilities in this country. The pandemic making it very difficult for a lot of families who haven't been able to visit their loved ones in long-term care and are worried after hearing some of the reports mainly out of Ontario and Quebec, but many questions being raised about the system and if the long-term care model needs a 
an overhaul. Well, Global News reporter Jill Croto is working on a series on long-term care homes in this country. Her story today looks at the anxiety and mental state around long-term care homes. And she joins me now to talk a little bit more about this. Jill, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, Who did you talk to about this particular part of the story? We talked to seniors. (laughs) They're sort of the most revealing voice in this because they're sitting in their living rooms watching these news stories and thinking, okay, this might potentially be my next eventual step. So it really gives you a scope of their mental state. And there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of worry. I mean, to the point where they said, seeing what is happening now, I would rather die than to go into these long-term care homes. And that gives you a pretty good sense of just how emphatic and serious they are about just the real terror of the next step. I mean, they, they are just utterly dreading this. And that's really the sad state of affairs is that they're not looking forward to the next stage of their life. And did they make the, the, the or differentiate between the, the, the range of the facilities and that there are long-term care facilities, that there are retirement communities, there are, there are many different kind of types of long-term care? Mm-hmm. And, and these seniors are, are they were talking about the, the sort of nursing homes as we kind of traditionally know them. And right now, these seniors that I spoke to, they're living independently and in a retirement village type home. And they're in their 80s and they just think like, what, what is going to be next? And there's a real fear and it's really triggered, I think, people across the country to really start to have these conversations with their own parents or their own grandparents, depending on the situation, and just say like, what do you want? What does it look like for you to head into your golden years? Is this what you want? And if it isn't, then I really think that it's time that we have a a hard look at what is happening across our country because this pressure, this stress that the system has been under now, it's been like this for decades. It's just this COVID-19 pandemic has really revealed some concerning cracks. And did you get the sense that there were concerns before the pandemic or is it the pandemic and what we've seen, particularly in in cases in Ontario and Quebec, that's what really has been eye-opening for people? It's historic. There's been advocates that I've talked to that said, we have been saying this, we have been standing on this platform, you know, shouting from the rooftops about we need to do better by our seniors for years. There's been recommendations that have been made that have never been implemented by governments. So there's a real, you know, lack of action to do something. And so I think that families and loved ones are seeing this pandemic as leverage. They're saying we, this is an opportunity now because now everyone is listening. Because if we don't take this opportunity now, we never will. I mean, a lot of these families are saying, I'm okay. I get it. My parents are in my 90s. I'm okay that they die of a stroke. I'm okay if they die of a heart attack. I'm even okay if they die of COVID. But I'm not okay if they die of negligence in the home that they live in. And did they get into specifics on things that they would like to see change or at least the priorities when we're looking at this? The biggest one is transparency. You know, I mean, you you go online and you do some research and you look at some of these long-term care homes. You can't find a whole lot about them. You can find their inspections about, you know, general maintenance and cleanliness and sort of the food, the, the state of the home, the infrastructure. But the inspection reports aren't made public about the things that really matter, about the care for your grandparents or parents. And you can't find that stuff online. 
And if you and if there are some infractions, where's the accountability? A lot of these families are saying legal action is our only route. I mean, we shouldn't have to be having to sue these home operators in order to get some accountability. There has to be a better way. I would imagine, too, it's come up that you shouldn't also have to be the watchdog yourself. And I think that's what's mm-hmm. causing a lot of stress for people is they haven't been able to access the homes. And I've had people, loved ones in long-term care, and it's been amazing, the staff amazing. But if I wasn't going there uh, once or twice a week, uh, not that I would think things would have gone sideways, but but people, I think, do take on that role of watchdog and, and keeping tabs on what's happening to their loved ones. And that is an incredible burden to bear, if you think about it. You know, I mean, there's already that guilt, you know. I mean, fa- you know, loved ones have these guilts about putting their parent into a long-term care home because they know nobody wants to leave the comforts of their own home. So that's already there. And you're just kind of hanging on by a thread. It's exhausting, you know, caring for an aging parent and making sure that they're happy and healthy. And so by the time things start to go sideways and then maybe they pass away in these homes, these families are wiped. They're just completely tapped out. So they're not going to take on an entire long-term care system and start advocating for change. So over the years, these things just start to fall apart. And it's that's why the time is now. I think that the collective of all of these families are saying this is just not good enough. And together, we have to work towards some semblance of change. All right. Well, Jill, look forward to this story and more on this coming up. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us. Thank you. That is Jill Croto with Global News Alberta, and she is doing a series of stories on long-term care homes. Today is looking at the anxiety and mental state of people around in and with family members in long-term care. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, these are the kind of approval numbers that politicians tend to really like. A new study from the Angus Reid Institute finds at least 7 in 10 residents in every part of this country says their province has done a good job in handling COVID-19. Let's bring in Shachi Curl, Angus Reid Institute Executive Director. Thanks so much for joining us to go through these numbers. Thanks for having me, Jill. That's a pretty high number when we're talking about approval of politicians. Very high, and we've seen this uh, on the specific question around handling COVID and coronavirus emergency response. We've also seen it just in terms of general approval. Do you approve or disapprove of this particular politician? So on both those fronts, you see very high numbers relative to what we've seen in the past in terms of, well, do you think this politician is handling this very well or that very well? The the general tendency over years and years of looking at this kind of research tends to be that people are pretty cynical, pretty jaded towards their leadership. Um, this has has really been an outlier. So all it took was the worst public health crisis uh, in our lifetimes for people to actually take a look at what their, their elected leaders are doing and say, yeah, they're doing an okay job. Interesting, though. Exactly. So the one time or where we see numbers like this that people say they're doing a great job is, like you said, it's this public health emergency and also a time when all of these politicians are handing out buckets of money. Well, there is that, too. Um, What I would say about the buckets of money is there will be a reckoning. At some point, people will say, look, uh, now we have to pay all this back. What does this mean in terms of program spending? What does this mean in terms of taxation? But 
Jill, we've taken very deep and and uh, and thorough looks at what that money at the moment is doing for people. And for those who have lost their jobs, for those who have found themselves uh, out of work or dealing with reduced work, the money has certainly kept them afloat. We released a study last week that showed Canadians generally had a positive economic outlook. And what that said to me was that among those households that are are hardest hit financially, the money that has been going out the door in terms of emergency program spending has been, for many households, the difference between feeling like they're making it and feeling like they're about to go under. Which could help explain that you also asked people in BC about their voting intention and the NDP came out quite far ahead. Yes, the NDP, relative to the B.C. Liberals in this province, uh, have been doing better, have had a, a wider gap in terms of vote intent than uh, than the, the Liberals under Andrew Wilkinson for a while. But this really opens up the largest, uh, widest gap I've seen since we've been looking at vote intention in this province uh, under this particular government. So you've got the NDP now at 47% of decided voters, uh, the BC Liberals with 29%. And what's really happened with the Green Party, which at one point was, uh, you know, tied for, for second place with the Liberals um, and quite popular, not so much anymore, down to 12%. So the NDP have really taken that Green vote and subsumed it. So, um, you know, this to me, is uh, a pattern that we see repeated across the country, regardless if it's uh, a left or right of center government in power. Uh, The governments of the day, the incumbents, are all doing quite well in terms of their approval and in terms of their stated vote intention. Of course, the challenge, if you're a politician or if you're a strategist, is to say, oh, gee, I really wish I could find a way to to capitalize on this. I wish I could find a way to make this work for me at the ballot box. But the minute any of these politicians start talking about voting in elections, they are going to lose all of that goodwill in a, in a minute, in the snap of a finger. All right, Shachi, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. That is Shachi Curl, Executive Director at the Angus Reid Institute. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I think we can all appreciate the oceans are extremely important. And today is World Oceans Day. So we wanted to take a few minutes to look at some of the research that is happening right here in our own backyard. Jessica Schultz joins me now, manager at the House Sound Research and Conservation at the Coastal Ocean Research Institute. Jessica, thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Your expertise is very uh, wide as far as sponge reefs, biodiversity, the health of the ecosystems. So let's start with the sponge reefs and how important are they to uh, making sure we do have that biodiversity and we do have healthy oceans? Yeah, definitely. Um, So sponge reefs are something maybe a lot of people haven't heard of, um, but they're globally unique to British Columbia. And what it is is um, they're sponges that build their skeletons out of glass, which is, makes them very fragile. Um, and they grow on top of one another, similar to a coral reef. So what that does is it provides a lot of living space for biodiversity, fish and crustaceans and other things that are part of that ecosystem that use that, that habitat. So that's a very important part of the ecosystem here and something that's really unique to the area. So that's 
that's kind of cool. And I understand, though, there, like many things in the oceans, there is a threat to them. Are we sure? Or is there concern about the future of them? Certainly. Um, so, uh, like many other sensitive habitats, they're very subject to damage from human activities um, and also vulnerable to climate change. Some recent research has, has found out. So that they're sort of a, a metaphor or a, a microcosm of what's happening in the in the greater ocean, which in a lot of cases is out of sight, out of mind, and so it doesn't get the same attention or awareness that um, the things we're doing can, in fact cause a lot of threats to these important ecosystems. And do you get the sense, is one more of a threat than the other as far as it warming oceans, or is it human activity that's disrupting them? In the case of the sponge reefs, I'd say it's it's a combination of both. Um, the most obvious things that we see are things like fishing traps being placed on the reefs or damage from downrigger fishing gear that can physically damage the, the reefs, which is a lot more obvious, but then we're also finding that with climate cycles, they really do struggle in warmer water and you see some some dying back, um, whereas they seem to thrive in, in colder years. Um, so I'd say both are, both are definitely having an impact. The direct damage is more obvious and more immediate, um, but climate change is definitely sort of a slower, more insidious problem, I'd say. And what do we lose if these reefs are damaged or if they're lost altogether? Well, like like a lot of other ocean habitats, there's a lot of things that the ocean does for people for free. We call these ecosystem services. Um, in the case of sponges, they are filtering huge volumes of seawater, which um, not only removes bacteria from the water, but it also stores carbon. So the oceans absorb about a third of atmospheric carbon dioxide. They're an incredibly important solution for climate change, but they're also... Um, under more pressure right now than ever before. So mitigating climate change is, is one important thing that sponge reefs and other habitats do for us. Um, but it's also more other ecosystem services, for example, providing food. So um, because they're important habitats, they have trickle-down effects to things like fish that we like to eat. Um, and so all those things are, are connected. I think we tend to think that we have pretty good policies when it comes to keeping our environment clean, or at least we try to uh, in BC. What do you think we need to do, or where should we focus as far as the oceans are concerned? Yeah, great question. Um, I definitely agree that um, we're doing some really good things. Um, One thing that I'll just comment on the side is that when you think about these global problems like climate change and ocean degradation, it can be very overwhelming. Um, But the good news is that we can see that oceans and nature in general is very resilient and quite good at recovering when we just give it a little bit of help and a little bit of management. So um, the number one thing we can do is, is always climate change, which is harder to think about because it's such a global problem. But just thinking about what you can do in your own community to help with climate change is a big one. Um, the second biggest threat to the oceans is overfishing. Um, so 90% of a lot of the big fish are, are gone. So these are things like tuna, um, uh, sharks, salmon. So just being conscious about the decisions you're making and what you're eating makes a huge impact. Um, and then habitat destruction is another another big one. So protecting ocean areas, being careful about what practices are happening in which areas, um, thinking about the ecosystem as a whole and how we can manage manage it together rather than one species at a time. 
Um, so it really comes down to a lot of policy and management decisions. Um, and then what we can do as individuals is really be engaged in your community, know what your government's doing, and make sure that, that it's really representing the things that you care about. All right. Uh, Jessica, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time. Okay. Thanks so much. Cheers. That is Jessica Schultz, Manager, House Sound Research and Conservation at the Coastal Ocean Research Institute. Should mention as well, OceanWise is putting together a big fundraising campaign. It starts today and there should be more information on that coming out as well.